Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And we are publishing this episode three days after the 70th anniversary of D-Day, which is basically the beginning of the end for World War II. And so to bring the focus, the giant focus of World War II, into our podcast, we wanted to take a look at women during World War II, specifically working women during World War II, because oftentimes in the podcast we will reference how this was a huge period for women. Women were entering the workforce like never before. They were leaving the homes, both single and married women, and going to work in factories, in munitions operations, and, as we'll look into, a couple of other really interesting positions. And so then the question is, was this period such a watershed for women's employment outside of the home? Because... We do cite it so often. It's almost a knee-jerk reflex to say, well, World War II, women leave the home, hooray, and then we all live happily ever after. But there have now been more recent revisionist histories taking a closer look at the permanence of these labor shifts and have found that it might not have been as much of a watershed as we thought. So let's give a quick rundown, though, of World War II, the, t- the timeline, to give you a reference for when all of this is happening. Yeah, don't worry. We're not going to walk you through the entire war. No, no, so, we won't. So don't, don't turn off the, the podcast. We're just going to sprint through the war. We're going to sprint through the war. So um, for the Chinese, the war, World War II began in 1931 when Japan invaded northeastern China. For Europeans, the war began in 1939 when Germany invaded Poland. And for Americans, as we well know, World War II began on December 7th, 1941, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And we timed this podcast for D-Day, which commemorates the Battle of Normandy, which started on June 6th in 1944 and lasted through August. And it's considered the beginning of the end of the war because... After the Battle of Normandy, the the Nazi Germany strongholds were starting to fall like dominoes across Europe. And so by May 1945, the war in Europe ended. And in the Pacific, the war ended in August 1945 with the nuclear bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Right. And so by 1945, when you're looking at the U.S. specifically, there were 12.2 million U.S. military personnel, many of whom were volunteers and some of whom were women. And the U.S. itself, just specifically the U.S., experienced more than 407,000 military casualties during the war. And so with all of these millions of people involved in the military, so many people overseas, so many casualties, we wanted to look at the home front. What were the women folk doing while all of the men folk were out fighting. Yeah, and, and not to discount all of the incredible roles that women were filling in the military abroad and, you know, doing their part to fight for allied freedom. Uh, but, we, but we wanted to take this opportunity to talk about the home front, too, because I don't think it gets quite as much attention. So what's going on at this time while, you know, the soldiers are fighting in Europe and elsewhere is that there's rationing happening to conserve limited resources, especially food, rubber, and steel. You also have 
the militarism and pro-America propaganda seeping into all corners of entertainment and pop culture. You know, you have war-themed movies, radio shows, songs, comic books. If you look at classic Superman and Wonder Woman, there's a lot of, uh, you know, kind of war themes of going and fighting the Nazis. Yeah, even uh, even Disney. We talked about in our Disney episode, even Disney did uh, a Donald Duck send-up of Hitler. So even, even Donald Duck was involved in World War II. Oh, yeah. And, you know, when you look at families as a whole, they definitely were a part of the war effort on the home front, for sure. Um, through various propaganda campaigns, families were encouraged to recycle materials, even down to waste fats. So after you fry up that bacon, don't forget to save the fat. And it's 2014, and my mother definitely still does that. She puts the bacon fat in a tin can and puts it in the fridge so she can use it to cook green beans. Not to make explosives. Not to make explosives. As they would have in World War II. Um, you were also asked to, to recycle scrap metal, create victory gardens, buy war bonds, ration, enlist. Of course, that's a huge one. And stop spreading those war rumors. Because remember all those posters that said things like loose lips sink ships and... They had all these sexist posters, too, about, like, men sitting around smoking cigars discussing war strategy and, like, a woman listening from the background, like, hey, don't talk about the war in front of the lady. Betty's such a war gossip. <laughs> She's such a war gossip. But, I mean, speaking of Victory Gardens, um, this was a huge thing. This was a huge part of that whole food rationing aspect. And in 1944 alone, 21 million families had planted 7 million acres of Victory Gardens. Gardens that yielded eight million tons of vegetables. Can you imagine? Uh, no, I can't imagine because now we are so. I feel like our even even in suburbia back then, you know, you have all these victory gardens popping up, and I feel like it's so rare these days that we see that kind of suburban and more urban gardening. Um, although there have been revivals of it in pockets around the country here and there, but I do remember learning about victory gardens for the first time, Caroline. <laughs> while reading the American Girl series about Molly, because she was <laughs> she was my favorite American Girl doll, even though I owned Samantha. But I liked Molly the most because she grew up during World War Two. And for some reason, as a child, I was very fascinated with that time period. Interesting. And I loved the idea of the rationing and growing a victory garden, just like Molly, all these things. Anyway, apparently I'm a, a woman after my time. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, getting getting into what really the focus of our episode today will be about is we also have to talk about the millions of new jobs that were created to support the military's efforts here in the U.S. on U.S. soil. As a result of all these jobs, there was a large-scale migration to city centers, industrial centers, and all of this increased industrial activity led to more opportunities for good-paying war work for African Americans and for women. And if you want to look at a great example of someone who fits into both of those categories, Mary McLeod Bethune, who was the president of the National Association of Colored Women and founder of the National Council on Negro Women, helped to publicize the availability of new job opportunities through black women's clubs and publications. And she also promoted greater opportunities for women of color as a consultant to U.S. government agencies on labor matters and female officer candidates. And even outside of paid employment, women were also rushing to volunteer their services. So you have 
women's auxiliary organizations forming to volunteer for the military and civilian civil defense organizations. You also have a lot of women training to drive ambulances, fight fires, provide emergency medical treatment, uh, become drivers for the Red Cross and motorcycle couriers. I mean, it, it sounds like really this is also an opportunity when a lot of cool kinds of jobs, whether paid or unpaid, are popping up for women because this came up too in our episode on firefighting women mm-hmm. a while back when you see the spike in women's per- participation in local firefighting departments during World War II because the men are off fighting Nazis, so the women have to stay home to fight the fires. Right. Somebody has to put out the fires. And, I mean, it's it's a shame that it took a war for women to be able to do that in any sort of official capacity. But... Anyway, let's look at the numbers, shall we? So before the war in the United States, 11.5 million women were working. So already there was definitely a strong female presence in the U.S. workforce. But during the war, we always hear about this massive influx of women getting jobs. So six million at least. Um, Now, during the war, as we often hear about this massive influx of women into jobs during World War Two, we have over six million new women entering the workforce, around half of whom are working in the war industries. And so between 1940 and 1945, the female percentage of the U.S. workforce increased from 27 percent to nearly 37 percent. And from the end of 1943 through early 1944, during the peak of war production, around 50 percent of U.S. women were employed. So this is where why you hear all the time about how this was unprecedented for, you know, women's participation in the workforce. Right. And, you know, there there is the whole pay aspect that women basically provided cheap labor while the men were gone. I mean, they rarely made more than 50 percent of what the men had earned. But think about it. These jobs were paying higher salaries than the jobs that were traditionally categorized as women's work, the the work that was acceptable for women to do outside of the home. Things like being a teacher, being in domestic service, clerical work, nursing, stuff like that. Um, and I thought it was interesting. There was one study we looked at that that highlighted women's participation in the auto manufacturing and electrical manufacturing industries specifically. They, they pulled out just this information um, and pointed out that in 1945, women made up 22.4% of auto manufacturing industry workers, and they also made up 28% of the United Auto Workers Union. And that's a whole other aspect, too, that's so critical. Because during World War II, the UAW had 250,000 female members. That's huge. It even established a women's bureau in its war policy division that, in 1944, addressed pay inequalities between male and female workers. And the auto sector is a standout example because prior to the war, there were very few women working in that type of manufacturing compared to electrical engineering, which actually employed a lot of women before the war. Mm -hmm. But if you look at 1910 in the auto industry, only 3% of it was comprised by female workers. 
Yeah. And so going over to the electrical manufacturing industry, um, comparing that to auto, in 1945, women made up 47.5% of those workers, and they made up 40% of the United Electrical Workers Union. So they they definitely had a voice. They might have been in sort of an unfortunately temporary work situation. I don't think they quite knew at the time how temporary it would end up being, but they they had a voice while they were there. And if you just look at manufacturing across all of those different industries, women's employment grew 140% during World War II. So uh, looking at some other specific types of jobs that women were doing, I found some articles on women being computers. Yes, women as computers, not women programming computers, but actually being human computers. Right. And what's so interesting about this line of work is that it was kind of secret. It was kind of a top secret wartime work mission. In 1942, hundreds of women were recruited to work as computers and they were targeted for their math skills. Usually they had either studied or majored in math in college. And basically what they did as computers, they would calculate the weapons trajectories for soldiers overseas, often working double or triple shifts. Um, they would use mechanical desk calculators to solve these long lists of equations and then send those results in table form to the gunnery officers. And they also were able to take into account variable conditions like temperature and air density and even calculate whether an enemy was standing or lying in a trench. Yeah. And I mean, that kind of explains why a lot of this was top secret work. And you have people, though, like Lila Todd, who was an example of a specialist. She was a specialized human computer who operated a differential analyzer that calculated shell or bombs flight paths as they flew through the air. Now, of course, today, all of this is completely mechanized and, you know, can be calculated in a split second. But in these early days, you have a host of women like Lila Todd and others who are are doing these important calculations for the military. Yeah. And I, I did read that, you know, there were machines that could do various types of calculations or set up the equations, but the women as the computers were really expected to check the machine's accuracy. The machines were not to be trusted. And we would be remiss, though, to not mention that uh, out of this military World War II-fueled focus on computing, you have the development of the ENIAC, which was one of the first electronic digital computers. And it was a group of six women, quote unquote, human computers who had been trained during World War II. Kay McNulty, Frances Bylas, Betty Jean Jennings, Elizabeth Snyder, Ruth Lichterman and Marilyn Westcoff, who were chosen to program it. So early STEM history in there for you, folks. That's awesome. Um, in... I just I, this next one, I just have like this great montage, this imaginary montage in my head of, of these women going down the street. But in New Orleans, they were affected by the war because all their conductors left. So women had to work as streetcar conductorettes. And I just imagine them with like a jaunty hat, like pulling the whistle going down the street. Now, I mentioned manufacturing a few minutes ago. Uh, not surprisingly, if you look at the major war industries like metalworking, chemical, rubber, That saw a major jump in women's employment of 460% during the war. And the munitions industry in particular heavily recruited women's workers. This is where you get all those riveters, all those Rosie the Riveters lining up. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and the industry that saw the greatest increase in female workers was the aviation industry, which makes sense. More than 310,000 women worked in the U.S. aircraft industry in 1943, which represented 65% of the industry's total workforce, compared to just 1% in the pre-war years. So we've established that, yes, there was this influx of women into these various industries, some directly related to the war, some not so much. But the government didn't just snap its fingers and have all these women magically appear on the job. Rather, they had to develop a a propaganda program to sell the idea of women and particularly married women working outside of the home. And we're going to get into that propaganda campaign. And yes, we are going to talk some about Rosie the Riveter when we come right back from a quick break. Before the break, we were discussing the industries that women were entering, all of the different jobs that they were taking over as the men were going overseas to fight in World War II, and how it wasn't necessarily an overnight sensation that all of these women entered these various very masculine, traditionally masculine jobs. It was an effort. And during this time, the government turned to the War Advertising Council which created the Women in War Jobs campaign to stress the need for women to do their patriotic duty, walk outside of their homes, and get a gerb. Jobs that were previously seen as super masculine were now compared to housework to let women know, hey, you can rivet. Yeah, and uh, we read a lot about this in the book Gender at Work, the Dynamics of Job Segregation by Sex During World War II, which... Yes, it is a bit of a page turner, (laughs) even though it might not sound like it. Uh, And it talks, though, about how World War II really saw the extension of occupational sex segregation, where if you were to walk into an electrical engineering plant, you would have the women doing certain types of tasks that were highly repetitive, reliant on a lot of manual dexterity, a lot of uh, focus and attention, whereas men would have done jobs that required perhaps more physical stamina. And they then go into talking about how war work was sold to women. And the authors write, wartime propaganda imagery of a woman's place on the nation's production lines consistently portrayed women's war work as a temporary extension of domesticity. And jobs that had been previously viewed as the quintessentially masculine were suddenly endowed with femininity and glamour for the duration. And as a result of this propaganda campaign, you also see articles in popular media publicizing this need and probably too, like adding to that glamour effect of saying, oh, hey, no women, we need you. Come on, come to work. So in 1943, for instance, you have a Fortune magazine article headlined, the margin now is woman power, (laughs) which kind of sounds like an article you'd still see in <laughs> Fortune magazine. And in the same year, Newsweek reported that the government needed 3.2 million new workers and, quote, most of these will have to be women. So they were really, you know, pushing pushing this message. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you had to fill the slots. I mean, yeah, let's, I mean, let's get some cheap lady labor. We in there. needed to build planes and guns and all sorts of things. And who better to build you a plane than a lovely lady named Rosie. 
That's right. So the Rosie the Riveter propaganda campaign was, I mean, she was a character. She was, she was just a character. But I love reading the Rosie mythology because some, some real Rosies come up that people say that she's based on. Uh, among some other women, we have Rose Will Monroe, who moved to Michigan during the war and worked as a riveter building B-29 and B-24 bombers. And she, Rosie, the character, appeared in various incarnations throughout the war. Um, her origins lie around sometime around 1942 when a Westinghouse artist named J. Howard Miller created the We Can Do It campaign probably as part of his company's war work. And she's the prototype for the Rosie we think of in the we-can-do-it poster rolling up her sleeve. But there's also other Rosie characters during this time. There's a song titled Rosie the Riveter that was written by John Jacob Loeb and Red Evans that was released in early 1943. And the lyrics described the role that she filled. They said she's part of the assembly line. She's making history. She's working for victory. She's Rosie the Riveter. And that is definitely a song I would love to hear. But it was supposedly inspired by Rosalind P. Walter, who worked also as a riveter on the night shift on a course there, building the F4U Marine gull-winged fighter airplane. She later became a philanthropist, la-di-da, but she inspired that 1943 song. Yeah, and that was not the only Rosie the Riveter song. There was also one by the Four Vagabonds, and I, I enjoyed its lyrics that went, while other girls attend a favorite cocktail bar, sipping dry martinis, munching caviar, nice rhyme, mm-hmm. Four Vagabonds, there's a girl who's really putting them to shame. Rosie is her name. All day long with a rain of shine, she's part of the assembly line. And come to find out, in this Rosie the Riveter lore, she also had a boyfriend named Charlie, who was a soldier off fighting. Mm. So she was working, doing her riveting, hoping that Charlie could come home and then she could retire her red bandana after they get married. And she becomes Rosie, the housewife. Mm-hmm. How how surprised Charlie would be when Rosie wanted to hang on to that red bandana. How surprised Charlie would be when his wife became a feminist icon. That's right. <laughs> well, if we look to art and pop culture, we we can't forget to mention Norman Rockwell. Um, on May 29th, 1943, his depiction of Rosie appeared on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post. And while 19-year-old Mary Doyle served as the model for his Rosie, he made some drastic changes to her appearance, making her more muscular. And when I say that he made drastic changes, I mean, if you compare his Rosie on the cover of the magazine to Michelangelo's depiction of Isaiah from the Sistine Chapel... Like, there's your Rosie, that that big prophet Isaiah on the frickin ceiling of the that's that's Rosie just in overalls and a woman. Hey, I'll take it. Yeah. And 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 when he's like bending his arm, I don't know what he's doing on the Sistine. Ch- I don't know what he's doing on the Sistine Chapel ceiling. But but Rosie has a sandwich in that hand, something that I greatly appreciate. Now, for the U.S. government selling this idea of going to work w- was not too tough when you're talking to a group of Rosie the Riveters. And by that, I mean, you know, younger women who were probably unmarried might have had their, you know, Charlie boyfriends off fighting. They didn't have kids. It wasn't a crazy idea at the time for a woman to work before she got married. Because, I mean, you have to remember, too, that this was also the time when you start having what were called marriage bans. We talked about this in our teaching episode 
a little while ago about how essentially as soon as you got married or if you were married, you were barred from being hired by a, a lot of different places. And so you have that eroding and the U.S. government was having to make this much tougher sell in this era of marriage bans mm-hmm. to get married women on the job as well. And we read about this in the book, Our Mother's War, American Women at Home and at the Front during World War II. And they cite a 1936 poll which found that 82% of Americans believed that wives should not work if their husbands have jobs. And you have to remember that only one in 10 new women workers during World War II had soldier husbands because earlier in the war, there were automatic wife exemptions, basically like, oh, I got a wife, can't go to war because I got to stay home and take care of her. Or the, and, and then that gave way to like, okay, well, if you have a wife, that's not enough. But if you have kids and a wife, then you, then you're not going to go. And gradually those fell away, but it was still pretty common for husbands with wives and children to not be called to action. But because there w- was a lot of resistance for those women who had, you know, civilian husbands who were still had jobs and were working, there was a lot of resistance to allowing those wives to work. You have articles like this one published in The Nation in 1943 headlined America's Pampered Husbands, basically calling out these civilian guys who weren't keen on their wives working, which, again, that was a lot of them basically saying like, Hey guys, you can, you can make your own sandwiches. Rosie, the Riveter makes her own sandwiches. You can too. It's not a big deal. <laughs> so that was interesting to me to, to read about how this was one, one facet of this whole women's work issue that was probably the most challenging for the, the U.S. war propaganda machine. Well, yeah, because you don't think about women's husbands still being home telling them they can't go to work. You, we do. We just think of World War II as this time when it's like the parents are gone. You know, the cats away, the mice will play. It's like the doors are just open and women are like stepping outside into the sunlight, blo- you know, blocking the sun from their eyes, going like, I can get a job. Well, I wonder, though, how many of those women really wanted to get jobs, too. It was probably mm-hmm. a tough sell to them as well. But there was also this great uh, letter published in the, that book, Our Mother's War, from this woman who was married. I don't think she had any kids, but her husband was in the military and she had gotten uh, some kind of manufacturing job in one of the, the war industries. And she was so excited telling him about how she opened her own checking account. And she was like, oh, it's the best feeling in the world to be able to write a check and not have to ask anyone for permission. Oh, what a what a wonderful thing and what a nice little dig. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, but she was like, but she was genuinely overjoyed by it. Absolutely. But, you know, and that sounds great. Women women are working and they're opening their checking accounts. But we didn't end up in some amazing equal opportunity, equal working rights utopia in 1945 as soon as the war was over. So what happened after the war was over? Well, if you think about it, you know, we cited earlier in the podcast that by 1945, there were 12.2 million U.S. military personnel involved in the war. Let's assume a majority of those are men. So you have all these guys coming back and they need their jobs back. Right. Yeah. Basically, basically after the war, women went home. (laughs) 
or they were expected to go back into traditionally female occupations. And, you know, most industry analysts and government planners expected them to. And not only did they expect women to go back to the home or back to their clerical work, but they expected women to want to do that. So how surprised they must have been when the Women's Bureau of the Department of Labor got their survey results back after asking women workers about their future plans at the end of the war. When they polled all of these women, they found that many wanted to stay, but factories were converting to peacetime production and refused to rehire a lot of these women. 75% of the women they talked to said that they expected to be a part of the post-war labor force, and 86% of those looked forward to staying in their very same industry. And when you look at the women who were employed both before Pearl Harbor was attacked and during the war, 80% of those women, so the majority of those women, said that they wanted to stay employed. These were women who... Not to sound melodramatic, but they'd gotten a taste of freedom. They had opened their own checking accounts. They had been independent, either while their husbands worked at their normal jobs or while their husbands and boyfriends were overseas fighting the war. And how disappointing that so many of them were forced out of their manufacturing jobs. Well, and one thing that jumped out, too, in that post-war report from the Women's Bureau of the Department of Labor, it was as though they were opening their eyes for the first time to this idea of female breadwinners because they found that out of every 100 married women who were living in family groups of two or more people, 11 said they were the only wage earner supporting the family group. And so they go on to say that, quote, the state of marriage, therefore, does not in itself always mean there is a male provider for the family. How interesting. So this is the period that a lot of people are very interested in, including us, looking at were was this the watershed moment that we think it was was this was world war 2 the period that ushered in more and more women working yes it was but it it's not exactly super cut and dry because so many women were forced out of their manufacturing jobs but the service sector was expanding so even though women were having to leave certain jobs Some of them went home, but some of them also transitioned over to the service sector. Yeah, essentially, blue-collar women transitioned to become pink-collar women, as we think of it more today, with pink-collar jobs being more oriented towards customer service, waitresses, clerical work, secretaries, etc. And on top of this, too, you have to remember the cultural climate of the post-war years, where you're having this baby boom happen, you're having this resurgence of... You know, traditional domesticity, a la leave it to beaver with the wife at home and, you know, the husband going out. And for the first time, too, I mean, also, you got to remember, for the war, we had the Depression. Mm -hmm. And so this was also a new period where due to the economic boom time happening, it was possible for a, a lot more families than it was prior to the war To have a sole breadwinner, and that sole breadwinner would have, in this time, you know, had to have been a guy. I mean, it would have been a man going out to to earn the wage for his June Cleaver. Right. And a lot of authors that we looked at were talking about the defeminization of these manufacturing jobs as men came back. And remember, at the top of the podcast, we were looking at the auto manufacturing and electrical manufacturing industries in particular because they had a really high percentage of women in 1945. That dropped, though. If you look at auto manufacturing in particular, granted, it had a, pre, a very low pre-war women percentage, 
But the percent of women involved in the auto manufacturing industry dropped from 22.4% in 1945 to just 9.5% in 1946. So that's it's not like that's a huge amount of time. In electrical manufacturing, it dropped from a high of 47.5% in 1945 to 39.4% in 1946. So it leads us back to that original question of whether or not World War II really did have a direct role in the eventual rise in women workers and even feminism. Because there's that one major school of thought that we hear all the time and we say all the time on the podcast that World War II was this watershed moment for women's employment because, I mean, we have to acknowledge that from 1943 to 1948, the average hourly earnings of female manufacturing workers, for instance, rose relative to that for male workers. Even though we were still underpaid, we were, by the end of it, less underpaid than we were before. But some say, some like Claudia Golden, who has looked a lot into this issue, she says, "Eh, not so much, though. You can't make that blanket statement, at least. Yeah, Golden's been writing about this very specific topic for years. And in a 2013 paper, she and her co-author were writing about how basically states with a higher mobilization of men, i.e. soldiers heading overseas, saw more women getting into the labor force. Okay, that makes sense. If you have a bigger gap in employment, you're going to have more women fill it. Um, But she actually points out that the impact was strongest among those women with higher levels of educational attainment. She says that among those with at least a high school diploma, almost 80 percent were in white collar jobs. And for those with less than a high school diploma, just 25 percent were in white collar positions, about 75 percent were in blue collar jobs. And the vast majority of these were in manufacturing. And so for those women in manufacturing, remember, they're kind of pushed out and transitioned into more pink collar work. And so it seems like. When it comes to Rosie the Riveter, life might not have been so grand for her after Charlie came home. Right. Because as as Golden points out, she says, look, by 1950, these women's occupations, both blue collar, white collar, they weren't that much different than they were in 1944, except that those manufacturing positions like Rosie the Riveter held decreased and the service occupations took their place among the lesser educated group. So if you have higher educational attainment, you're probably going to be okay regardless. But it's those women who were among the lesser educated groups that are probably going to get shoved into poorer paying and honestly less exciting jobs. They're they're not riveting anymore. Yeah, I mean, and, and these are probably going to be similar patterns that you will continue to see even today when it comes to, I mean, what kind of educational attainment and socioeconomic background, how that precludes you to the kind of work that you end up in. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that it would take an economist to tell you that that kind of pattern between, let's face it, more of at least educationally speaking, haves and have nots is probably persists beyond the World War II era. But we bring this up to... Maybe do a little, uh, a little revisionist history of our own to add some context to Rosie the Riveter, whether or not this really was that watershed moment, whether, mm-hmm. you know, all, all of the different moving parts of women entering the workforce in mass and the numbers that we see today. Yeah. It wasn't just a, well, okay, war's broken out. Here we go. Yeah. It took some convincing. 
And then once once they were in those roles, the bulk of the women who were filling those roles were like, oh, I'd like to stay. Could I stay? This would be great. I'm going to stay. And people are like, no, I don't no. think you can stay. And to that point, though, about World War II's impact on feminism, uh, one of the things we read was talking about how uh, not so much World War II, but really the civil rights movement that lit that fire mm-hmm. in terms of organizing and demonstrating. And so maybe that's a, another podcast for another time. But this has been our D-Day World War II commemorative episode. I hope you learned some things about that era that you didn't already know. I know I did. Yeah. And I'm really interested in hearing from listeners out there who might have a grandmother or a great-grandmother who who worked during this period. Yeah, let us know. Oh, any, any cool photos that you have. From that time, too. I love some. Mm-hmm. I still love World War II <laughs> era nostalgia. And you can send those emails to us at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can also tweet us or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. So we have a couple of Facebook messages to share with you about our episode, fittingly enough, on military spouses. And this first one comes from Christopher, and he writes, I would love to give you some feedback from the perspective of a male service member with 19 years experience. Being a military spouse is probably the toughest job I know of. I may go into harm's way in defense of this country, but I also do so willingly, knowing exactly what I'm getting myself into. Any spouse never signed up for this. They just happen to fall in love with one of us. When we leave, they keep the home front all on their own, never knowing when they'll hear from us or if that knock on the door is going to be someone telling them that their loved one is injured or worse. They need to have that time at home to take care of the house, the kids, the bills, etc. My brother-in-law recently moved in with his wife and I, and he was shocked at just how much my wife does just being a housewife. This creates a lot of stress for them. From my own experience, this is the root of why so many marriages fail in the military. It's that either the service member or the spouse doesn't realize this fully until that first serious deployment. That's why I recommend that a couple should go through a deployment together first. This is also the root of other such problems, such as the high rate of infidelity within the military. It's due to loneliness. One thing that I took to heart were the comments about the stigma associated with the supposed laziness of military spouses and the reasons you pointed out about the moves and such affecting long-term relationships and jobs. My brother-in-law recently moved in with my wife and I, and he was shocked at just how much my wife does being a housewife. This creates a lot of stress for them. From my own experience, this is the root of why so many marriages fail in the military, that either the service member or the spouse doesn't fully realize this until that first serious deployment. And that's why I recommend that a couple should go through a deployment together first. So thanks for that insight, Christopher. And I have a letter here from Brooke looking at sort of the darker side of what can happen among military spouses. But uh, Brooke writes that she was really excited to hear the episode on military wives. I myself am a former military wife. My ex-husband was a tanker during the Thunder Run in Iraq, and we were stationed at Fort Knox after he came back stateside. I can vouch for most things that were discussed in your podcast, including the extramarital affairs. My ex-husband was physically, verbally, and sexually abusive, and I allowed him to belittle me until I truly had not an ounce of self-esteem left over. He came back from Iraq with an STD, which he blamed me for giving him, and slept around with anything that looked his way. It wasn't until he slept with his first sergeant's wife, a friend of mine no less, that I had proof enough to leave him. 
The army didn't punish, demote, or reprimand him at all. Instead, they backed him up, protected him, and allowed him to stay enlisted as a non-commissioned officer. I was disgusted as this was not behavior that was deemed becoming of an NCO. With more and more stories making headlines about these types of situations, I can only hope that the armed forces will start to see the forest for the trees and deal with these soldiers as they should be dealt with instead of leaving the military spouses to deal with it on their own. The spouse is there to pick up the pieces when they come back from combat, but receives no support when there is trouble in their own home. Thanks for listening and giving us something great to listen to. And thank you, Brooke, for writing in. Yeah, and thanks to everybody who's written in to us. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And to find links to all of our social media, every single one of our podcast blogs and videos, please head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 